Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing well. Doing well, my friend. Well, I am excited to be here today. We're going to sit down and talk about one of the all-time greats, one of the most underrated in-ring performers of all time, but he had quite a run behind the scenes as well. Of course, we're talking about the one and only Arn Anderson. And uh, I guess before we, we talk about... Uh, his run with you, we should mention he started wrestling in 82 breaks in under his real name, Marty Lundy bounces around a little bit, spends some time with Matt Bourne as a tag team. It would go on to be doink somewhere in Georgia and around there, I believe is when, uh, he officially becomes an Anderson. I think maybe junkyard dog is the first person who points out that they look similar and Ole goes with it and he becomes an Anderson and. Starts uh, teaming with Oli as part of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew as Oli's, I guess, kayfabe nephew. He takes Gene Anderson's spot. And most people first become aware of Arn Anderson on Jim Crockett's TV with uh, WTBS as one of the members of the Four Horsemen. When did you first become familiar with the performer Arn? I assume it was before you met Arn. Uh, actually, it wasn't. Uh, <clears throat> as I've stated before, you know, NWA was really not uh, on my radar in Minnesota. We didn't, you know, get WTBS uh, at that time, uh, so I, I I didn't see Arn or become aware of Arn really until I got to WCW in about ninety two. He had the one year stopover in the WWF, but uh, all that largely gets sort of glossed over his time as uh, a brain buster managed by Bobby Heenan, teaming with his old friend Tully Blanchard. When you come into the company, uh, what do you remember about meeting Arn Anderson? You know, the thing that stands out uh, most in my mind is he was one of the few talents that I immediately enjoyed working with. Not that I didn't enjoy working with others, but I think Arn, because he was such an easy uh, person to work with on the mic, you know, my role as an interviewer, uh, I I was really only involved in, you know, kind of secondary shows, uh, the syndicated shows, as well as some of the work that I did on pay-per-view, but immediately Arn was one of the guys that was, he was so easy because he was so good. You didn't have to pull a great interview out of Arn. Really all you had to do was set him up properly and let him go. And he could just tell such an amazing story. And I think he appreciated my approach at least, if not my ability so much, um, my approach to interviews, because I really, even then coming from the AWA and the emphasis that Fern Gagne put on the structure of a good promo, um, that's, that's how I approached it. And, and I think Arn appreciated that. I can't speak for him. He may have a different view of it all, but for me and my perspective, just working with him was so easy. It became fun. I looked forward to it. Well, when he comes back from the WWF, I think it's like December of 89. And of course he's returning without Tully Blanchard. Uh, but very early in 1990, he wins the television championship from the great Muda. So it's really the first time we've seen Arn. Uh, outside of a tag match in a little while, because he had been almost strictly a tag performer and he goes on to have, uh, some feuds with the Z man and then ultimately drops the television title to Bobby Eaton at super brawl. And I think you debuted around great American bash time of 91 and, uh, sometime, uh, in September, the enforcers, which at this point are Larry Zabisco and Arn Anderson win the tag titles off of the Steiner brothers. And somewhere in the, in the fall of 91, maybe around Halloween havoc, Paul Heyman reveals that 
he's going to start his own new stable, the dangerous Alliance. And Arn's of course, going to be a big part of that along with Steve Austin and Rick rude and Medusa and Larry Zabisco and Bobby Eaton, quite a group of performers. Uh, what'd you think? You know, obviously you're not necessarily running things yet. You're still the stick man for WCW, but the formation of the dangerous Alliance, were you into it? You know, I, I was, uh, because of the quality of the, the talent that comprised that stable. It seemed a little odd to me, <clears throat> honestly, that Heyman, who has been so good on the mic for so long, probably from the beginning of his career, you know, it, it didn't, the, the role of Heyman, when you have somebody like Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, who are so great on the mic, to me seemed like overkill. There's <laughs> a lot of, a lot of mic skills involved in that stable. But beyond that, I, I really liked it. Of course, I've, you know, it, it, it was a callback, if you will, to, to the four horsemen. And, uh, I, I don't know. I liked it overall. I just seemed like, like uh, overload when it comes to my skill and talent. Do you, uh, did you have a Tony Schiavone and I have sort of freestyled before, you know, what would the dangerous Alliance have been? had there never been a four horseman, because it really was like this superstar stable of bad guys. And I think because the horseman came first, the dangerous Alliance is always going to sort of pale in comparison. How would you compare the two though? Hard for me to compare the two, because again, I wasn't that familiar with the four horsemen and its impact. I am certainly now, um, in retrospect, but hard for me to really compare the two at that time. Uh, the four horse. look, I've said this before, uh, numerous times in various interviews, it's once you are first, you know, it's, it's hard for anything to follow it. You know, the NWO is another example. There's been, you know, a numerous attempts of people to, you know, trying to recapture that magic that the NWO created, but they did it first in, in their own way. They certainly weren't like the four horsemen. They did it differently. Their story was differently Their The way they conducted themselves in the ring was different. There were a lot of things that were different about the NWO than the four horsemen, but they were both stables. Uh, I think the four horsemen kind of set the bar so high that anything that did follow it or attempted to follow it, particularly using some of the same characters or performers would by default be less than, uh, regardless of, of how great a job they did. It would, they would, they were the second man on the moon, not the first man on the moon. Well, Arn is going to continue his, uh, tour of, of tag team partners. Of course, we, we mentioned that he teamed early in his career with Matt Bourne, but really sort of becomes a, a main player teaming with Holy Anderson and then eventually Tully Blanchard. And we mentioned Larry Zbysko, but he even wins tag gold with Bobby Eaton, uh, picking up a win on a house show of all places over Ricky steamboat and Dustin Rhodes. Uh, what did you think of the pairing of Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson? I mean, these. These two guys are often talked about as, you know, oh, this guy's the best tag team wrestler ever. And now they're together in a tag team. That's got to be quite the pairing. That was a good pairing. And I think one of the things that intrigued me about it at the time was in Bobby Eaton, you had such a phenomenal talent in the ring. You, know, you couldn't dare give him a microphone. Uh, and he certainly didn't have the charisma and the look that you would hope for in a top level performer, but what he delivered in the ring was nothing short of spectacular when he was at the you know peak of his career. Uh, Arn Anderson, again, you know, this is where you have complementary skill sets. Arn was certainly no slouch in the ring. In fact, I think he could compare very favorably to Bobby Eaton's work, if not in some people's opinion, uh, exceed it. But Arn was the guy that you could give the mic to and could complete that package in a very effective way. 
We should mention that, uh, not too terribly long after the dangerous Alliance starts to wind down, uh, you guys are looking to reform the horseman in may of 93. And I think by this point, you've got uh, a more prominent role in WCW it's Arn Ole and Rick and allegedly Tully is supposed to come back and join. Uh, but I think Tully maybe wasn't happy with the financial offer or maybe it was the number of dates. Either way, you guys couldn't come to terms. Do you remember there being uh, much discussion or ballyhoo about Tully sort of playing hokey pokey and maybe he's back. Maybe he's not. I do remember the effort, you know, in bringing Tully in. I remember a lot of conversation again. I wasn't involved on the creative side. So those discussions didn't really uh, come under my umbrella. Um, but uh, at that time I was the executive producer. So I oversaw all of television and the production of it, but I didn't have anything to do with the wrestling talent, hiring, firing or management of it or creative at that point. But I do remember that there being a lot of conversation about Tully. I remember that conversation got very serious. And I think at one point we were all under the assumption that indeed Tully was coming in. I believe Tully came into the office a few times, but to your point, just not able to close a deal with him. And I think there was a lot of you know frustration and disappointment of, among a lot of the people that had worked with Tully in the past and felt like that would have been a good fit. But uh, for whatever reason uh, that I'm not aware of, uh, the deal just never got consummated. So instead, uh, the, uh, the brass at WCW is tasked with, hey, we've got to find another horseman. And it becomes Paul fucking Roma of all people. I don't get that, you know, to this day, I don't know who was driving that decision. I would have assumed it was probably Oli would have had a lot to do with it at that time, perhaps dusty. Um, not really certain on that, but again, I wasn't involved in, in those decisions or discussions at that point, but it did seem like an odd fit. And there was even, you know, I don't want to say heat or anything like that, but there was a lot of rumblings and general discord about Paul in that position. I don't think anybody that was really familiar with the horseman or its legacy felt that that was good casting. I don't think it was anything against Paul himself. I just felt my impression was that people just didn't feel like it was just bad casting. It's the only way I can put it. You know, good talent, solid talent, maybe even better than the solid talent in many people's mind, but just not the right fit for the four horsemen. Yeah, it's just weird that, you know, it seems like when, when Tully and Arn go to the WWF, the horsemen are really never the same. And I know a lot of people have wondered, Hey, why, why did, uh, you know, they leave and allegedly it was because they weren't happy with their, their payoffs and, and they had maybe heard grumblings of what other folks were getting paid. So they just decide, Hey, we're going to go to greener pastures. We've got a better offer. We're going to take the New York gig and make more money and that didn't last very long. I think only around 14 months. And, um, Arn is a little unique in this, in that I think Arn had the longest stretch of continuous employment, maybe in the history of wrestling, because when he got hired at Jim Crockett promotions, he had continuous employment until earlier this year with WWE with no lapse, always with a major wrestling company the entire time, but he's lived in the same town and been married to the same woman that entire time. And those are pretty unique characteristics in professional wrestling. And he wanted off of the road when he worked for Vince McMahon, because he's gone 24 days a month and they never are near Charlotte or close to it because that's not where the WWF was running at the time. So he doesn't have an opportunity to drive home and spend time with his young son. And he cuts a deal to come back for a lot less time. 
but it does feel like when he comes back, the momentum is sort of gone from the horseman. And that's never more prominent than when we see that, uh, Paul Roma is going to be a horseman. And a lot of people think that's the worst version of the horseman of all. Would you agree with that? Uh, I, I would certainly not disagree with it. Again, not being a four horseman aficionado, uh, but I, I can certainly understand why people feel that way. And again, I'll go back to what I said before. It's it's so hard to recreate something that was so great. Right. And it left such an indelible impression uh, on wrestling fans' mind and had so much legacy in history, even into 93 um, or at, at that point. So I, I get it. And I, it would be like... Again, I hate to keep going back to it, but it's the only um, faction that I think is probably considered as successful as a Four Horsemen was, if not more successful in some regards, uh, is the NWO. You just couldn't recast it. In my case, you know, I made the mistake of expanding it. We've discussed all the reasons why I did it, good or bad. Um, but the fact is, once you change the chemistry so much either in my case by adding to the NWO or in the case of the Four Horsemen by replacing, you know, original members with members that people just from a perception point, whether it's fair or not, they're perceived as less than. And it's just so hard to recreate something that was so successful in the past. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about uh, clash of the champions from 1993 how about this for a match? Ric Flair and Arn Anderson taking on Steve Austin and Brian Pillman. Of course, at the time, they're known as the Hollywood Blondes. A pretty big deal here to see so much talent, especially in 1993, before you know Pillman became sort of this cult figure and before Austin became arguably the hottest star in the history of the business. And they do a two out of three falls match. And unbelievably, Arn and Rick win in consecutive falls. They get the first fall and the, and the second fall. Um, the second fall of course is a DQ because Barry Windham attacks Rick, but this is really Rick's first match back in WCW after returning from the WWF. Can you speak to the creative at all in June of 93 of, of why this made sense to put Rick in a tag with Arn rather than a singles match upon his return? You know, I can't speak to it directly because I wasn't involved in it. I can only assume what some of those reasons might have been. Again, I can't I can't even remember as I sit here who is actually in charge of booking because it went back and forth so many different times over that period of time. Uh, obviously, you know, Rick had been involved. Uh, Bill Watts at some point was very much involved. Ole Anderson had a lot of influence. So there was there were a lot of um, hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. But I, I think it was an effort really just to try to get more people over. Um, not that Steve Austin and Brian Pillman weren't over, but the Hollywood Blondes were a successful tag team that I thought people, people I think, had a, a lot of um, hope for and, and thought could reach even higher levels of success. And it made sense to those involved, I believe, to use Arn and Rick to help achieve that. You know, it's a one thing, you know, we talked, you, you mentioned, you know, earlier about how <clears throat> what a successful career Arn had in terms of longevity and he certainly has no no question about that maybe one of the most successful careers in terms of longevity as you pointed out but sometimes when you're as great of a talent as Arn was and you were so good at getting other people over that you kind of got 
pigeonholed into that category mm-hmm. of, you know, you're an upper, you're one of the upper guys that can make anybody. And before you know it, that's your role is getting other people over. And I think perhaps, again, I wasn't involved in, in the, the process at the time, but perhaps that was the thinking. We, uh, we see more tag team gold in Arn's future clash of the champions is going to see him team up with Paul Roma to defeat Steve Austin and, uh, substituting for Brian Pillman will be Lord Steven Regal and Arn and Paul win the tag titles and they would hang on to them through fall brawl. And that's where the nasty boys would beat them. But the fall of 1993 is really what a lot of people are probably tuning in for us to talk about. There's an incident on October 27th in Blackburn, England. And most people know this is where the Sid situation happened. And there's been tons of accounts you know, from Vader and Sid and two cold Scorpio and lots of folks who were there. Um, Sid is, is going to go on record as saying that, um, well, I guess before we give Sid's account, when did you hear and what did you hear was the situation? I was at home. Uh, it was, uh, I don't remember what time of day it was, but I think it was pretty late in the evening when I got a phone call from Doug Dillinger, uh, who gave me the first account of what happened and kind of gave me the status of everything. At that point, I think, uh, Sid was in the hospital or had just gotten out of the hospital. Uh, so, you know, the first report I got was that, you know, it wasn't life threatening, but it was serious, obviously. Uh, God, I want to say it was around, I don't know. Eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, maybe, maybe a little bit later. I, I really don't recall what time it was, but it was Doug Dillinger who gave me the first, um, first piece of news. So Sid says, I'll tell you exactly what happened. We were in a bar and I was just waiting for food and we're all at a table drinking and Arn asked the question, what's wrong with our business? Why aren't we drawing the other company? This, the other company that. So I said, you want to know what's wrong with our business? We have an old man and Ric Flair who needs to get the fuck out of the way. We then got into a verbal argument and they were slinging beers in my face at the bar. And as I was going to my room, Arn and a bunch of other guys were in the hallway and he broke a beer bottle and threatened to cut me. And my room was just a few rooms down from him. So as I passed his room, I took a left about four doors down, go in, get in there. And I, uh, no, I'm not going to sleep. So I go back to the bar. And, uh, in his room and he's eating part of his sandwich and he says to himself, man, this motherfucker quote, I have a bad temper too. And I said, this fucker threw a beer in my face and now he's threatening me with a fucking broken beer bottle. You know, you have to draw a line. There was a chair sitting right there. So I broke a fucking leg off of it and I was going to whack him in the head a couple times. And when I got back down there, there was nobody in the doorway or the hallway and Anderson's door was shut. So I knocked on his door and said, come on out here, motherfucker, and bring your beer bottle. Some words were exchanged. I couldn't totally hear him, but I could hear him falling down and stumbling around. And I thought, oh, he's all fucked up. And I looked at my hand and thought to myself, this is fucking stupid. So I I was just through the thing. And you can look at the police records. The stick I had, I hit him with, never touched him. Uh, That I said I hit him with, never touched him. It was 20 feet the opposite way where the fight happened. And that stick had not one drop of blood, not one dent had not been hit or anything. And Arn comes out after I'd left and turned my back. And, uh, he's standing there with a pair of scissors. And I went just like this with him and said, Hey man, this has gone too fucking far. And now he's coming after me. 
and I don't remember being stabbed in the beginning. There's two doors in the corridor and he backed me up and I had nowhere to fucking run. And, uh, they're trying to stab each other now and having quite a struggle in the hallway and the scissors are falling out of his stomach. He says he's still got a a scar there, uh, but he doesn't feel it in his face or hands, but he definitely feels it in his stomach. And he thinks to himself, you know, this is getting out of hand. And he now has the scissors attacking Arn. And Arn says, man, you're fucking killing me or something like that. Blood is gushing everywhere. Vader hears this and nobody knows exactly what to do, but blood is pouring out of Sid's belly and he's trying to stick a towel over the hole. It's a fucking mess. The likes of which I don't think has ever happened in wrestling before. Have you ever heard of anything like this to this extent before? Not not a situation, you know, exactly like this, obviously. I mean, there's been stabbings in wrestling before, but this, you know, this kind of a fight and involving this many people and witnesses and things like that. No, I don't, I don't think so. Meltzer would write, not only are Vicious and Anderson's future in world championship wrestling in question and press time, but WCW management faces some major scrutiny because of rumors of uh, hypocritical, hypocritical, it's easy for me to say and double standard decisions that many believe could have set the tone for the incident. Um, you're obviously going to be criticized for the decision to hand down and pass judgment the way you did. Can you sort of carry us through the decision-making process about how you decided to hand down these punishments? Well, it it wasn't me by myself. You know, Bill Shaw had a lot to say about it. Um, he was the final decision. Ultimately, um, I had opinions about it. I expressed them. I had influence over the final decision, but the final decision was really Bill Shaw's. Not that I'm putting it on him because I think I did have influence and I, I think I had a, a lot of influence, you know, ultimately we had to look at two different things. We had to look at the incident itself, the message that it sent, um, the, the perception or the reality in this case of how well, uh, management handled it. At the same time, we had to balance that with the real world financial implications of having some of our top talent involved in this incident. So we did our best to try to find that middle ground. And so often when you compromise and you make decisions and choices that aren't rooted necessarily in policy, but you're reacting to a situation and you have to be fluid enough to cover your ass, both from a management and a legal perspective, as well as a creative and a talent management perspective, you find yourself in that dangerous middle ground. And that's exactly where we were. We should mention that there's lots of, uh, alcohol involved. So nobody's story really lines up. Everybody's got a different version of the story, but more often than not, people say that a lot of the fight started with Sid bragging about holding up WCW for a hundred thousand dollar a year raise. And how meanwhile, Arn got a hundred thousand dollar a year pay cut from Bill Watts. That would have been back in 1992 and how it's time for sting to step out of the limelight. He's now the top guy and the old fuckers like flair and Arn just need to retire and stop holding the company back. Most everyone agrees that Doug Dillinger took Arn to his room and that Arn maybe had a little too much to drink that night. And most agree that Sid returned to the door. Uh, trying to call him out with a broken 
chair leg or whatever. And Arn says he opened the door, Sid nails him in the head with it, knocks him out. And when he comes to, it's because Sid is on top of him throwing punches. And at this point, Arn realizes he's in major trouble, scrambles, finds the scissors and here we go. But Anderson wound up getting stabbed himself 20 times, most in the shoulders and back, but, uh, a lot of wrestlers are going for the eye and allegedly there's a, there's a bad mark on the eye and vicious is claiming that he blacked out. It's just a fucking huge mess. Can I, can I, can I, I want to say this before we get too far into this, you know, I know WCW myself in particular were criticized for the way we handled the situation. Part of the reason that we were in that dangerous middle ground I just referred to, referred to a few moments ago is because there was no definitive story that we could really believe. Right. You know, it was half a dozen people giving you different versions of the same incident. That makes it a little more difficult to to come down and make a definitive judgment or a definitive si- decision on, on how best to handle that when you've got so many varying stories. That was part of the reason why. Not an excuse, just a reality. You know, We couldn't really get a clear picture. And the fact that there was alcohol involved, and I could certainly see it happening. You know, when I heard about it, I could just knowing the personalities even then as I knew them, I could see how something a, a version of Sid's story could be true. You know, look, I, I, there's not many people I have more respect for in, in many respects than Arn Anderson. But Arn Anderson, once he put his crosshairs on you, um, and I can only imagine what that would be like if he was hungry, angry, you know, halt, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, and oh, by the way, drinking. <laughs> I can only imagine how vicious Arn can be verbally and abusive. He can be in in front of people. And one of the things about Arn is he's so damn good at it that I could see that situation escalating. It's hard for me to imagine Sid, you know, having, making some of the comments that allegedly he made about Ric Flair and getting out of the way and bragging about his hundred thousand dollar raise and holding up the company and all that. I'm not saying it didn't happen because I wasn't there. You know, and I don't know Sid all that well. I, you know, I feel like I know him a little bit, and I'm certainly in my dealings with him. I never saw that side of his personality. Again, not saying it didn't happen, but it's it's a little harder to imagine uh, for me. Uh, Sid kind of taking on that position in front of the boys. That said, we'll never know. <laughs> who's telling the truth and the fact that there was so much alcohol involved. I'm not sure anybody can really remember what happened, um, definitively. It's, uh, it's unfortunate that this happened the way it did, because obviously you guys had big plans for Sid at Starcade. I think the original plan for Starcade 93 was Sid and Vader. Is that right? I, I think so. Of course, the, the audible that's called is, well, we'll slide Flair in there. It's in Charlotte. And it became a uh, pretty famous match in Ric Flair's career because it's a crowning moment in his hometown. And he overcomes this monster of Big Van Vader and becomes the champion yet again. But he, Sid sort of finds himself out of a job here. He, he briefly stops through the USWA and does some stuff with Jerry Lawler and eventually lands on the Monday night Raw show in February of 95, but Arn Anderson maintained his employment 
carry me through what you remember was, uh, the punishment for Arn and, and how those two, uh, were different because a lot of people, if you're, I guess, looking for a finger to point would say that Ric Flair helped save Arn's job. Ric Flair did help save Arn's job. There's no question about that. I had numerous conversations with Ric Flair about the situation and going back to, again, the scenario that we've all heard, including, you know, Sid's recollection of the story, he did go back to the room. I mean, he did. If Sid would have, you know, it's easy to be really smart about situations after the fact and in retrospect. But, you know, as out of line as Arn allegedly was and, and, and breaking in a beer bottle and threatening to cut Sid, that was completely inappropriate. You know, unprofessional to say the least, borderline criminal, if not criminal, um, shouldn't have ever happened. But the fact that Sid did go to his room, it, the situation was over. Arn was no longer in the hallway. The situation didn't have to happen and wouldn't have happened had Sid not gone back and decided to, you know, instigate act two of this three act disaster. Um, and that's probably why Sid ended up on the receiving end of harsher uh, punishment and was terminated because that really was the defining incident. That's what led to the stabbing. Sure. There were a lot of things. There were a lot of other things that led up to it, you know, earlier in the day and at night at dinner when they were waiting for food and, and having beers and all that, it escalated from there. But the fact is the situation was over once, according to Sid, Sid went back to his room and Arn went to his room and Sid decided to, you know, re-engage and i think it was the re-engagement going back to arm's room that that landed sid where where he landed as opposed to arn arn and rick did have to to the last part of that question rick did have a lot of influence you know he he petitioned in a in a big way to to save arn's job and i think that definitely had some impact on bill shaw and certainly had some impact on me Let's talk about, uh, him popping up in an ECW show. How does this come together? May of 94, Bobby Eaton and Sabu defeat Arn Anderson and Terry Funk. I've always been fascinated how these deals are worked out where all of a sudden Arn Anderson can pop up in a smoky mountain wrestling or an ECW. I assume that you guys had a good relationship with Paul, or is this is a result of Paul's lawsuit against WCW and you loan talent, uh, I'm out of sort of conspiracy theories. How does this happen? Well, it's certainly because we, not because we had a great working relationship with Paul. We, we had one with Paul, but more often than not, it was born out of some kind of necessity or desire in some cases to have a better relationship, uh, with Paul. I, I think it's safe to say, and I don't remember the particulars of how it all came together. I, I certainly would have been involved. I can't say that I wasn't, but, um, was it most likely the result of trying to mitigate some potential legal issues? Yeah, probably was. I, I didn't see any harm or any foul at that time. And this is not a knock on ECW for all of you listeners who are just waiting for me to knock ECW. I'm not going to do it. But at the same time, it wasn't a real hype. Neither was Smoky Mountain. Neither one of those promotions were such, you know, national high profile positions that having some of our talent on that show had any adverse impact on us. So if it was easy to accommodate and there was no adverse impact and it either helped develop a better relationship or as most likely the case, mitigate a potential legal issue, it really wasn't that big a deal. 
it's just fascinating to me that, uh, you know, this is an era where, you know, there, there's very much a, a wrestling war going on and Arn Anderson pops up in Smoky mountain in 93 and ECW in 94. And, uh, I'm sure we'll get to talk to, uh, to Paul and, and Jim Cornette one day and get more details on all that. But I do want to talk about a situation that happens in 94 when Arn is thrown into the ropes and the top rope breaks from the turnbuckle and he's able to land on his feet. But six months later, same event happens, but this time he lands full force on the concrete, hits his head, neck and upper back. He never takes the time off to heal. And as time passes with really no downtime, the injuries begin to worsen. And Arn says the first sign of problems is during the match, his left arm suddenly went numb and unresponsive. And later on, they found a rib possibly torn away from the spine during that accident. And it's popping in and out of joint, which is causing shoulder discomfort and weakness. This is not something that a lot of fans ever heard about. Did you ever hear about these injuries sustained from a top rope breaking like this? I didn't. I mean, I don't recall being involved in it at all. I'm, I'm sure I was to a degree or I was made aware of it, but again, it wasn't something that I dealt with on a, under, in my role. It would have been probably been either a Nick Lambros or Diana Myers or would have been a legal um, discussion at some point, you know, because of the injuries. Um, I was, I was aware of it, but not to the extent that I can recall specific details. I do obviously recall the, the, the aftermath of it all and the issues that Arn was having with his hand and, and his arm and the fact that he had to have the surgery and, and the post-operative issues that resulted from it. But the actual incident where it happened, I, I just, uh, I don't remember being involved in those discussions in any detail. Arn would still uh, not be done collecting some championship gold. He wins the TV title again. In uh, January of 95, this time from Johnny B. Bad. Things changed a lot over that five years. January of 90 beats Great Muda for the belt. Five years later, Johnny B. Bad. Uh, six months later, though, June of 95, it's the Great American Bash. And this has got to be a real high point in your booking, your creative, your, your tenure. Arn drops the TV title to the fucking Renegade. Uh, <laughs> oh god i know i i'll be honest with you I, when you were saying we i guess we should give a peek behind the curtain you and i talked before we taped this show several hours ago and you were like Conrad, i wasn't really around for a lot of his crockett stuff and i don't really know what we can cover of that and i said oh no there's so much good stuff and i list off all the stuff we're going to talk about and i conveniently don't mention the renegade fucker <laughs> <laughs> this is unbelievable carry me through the idea behind the renegade i think everybody can sort of jump to their own conclusions and has probably years ago and i certainly understand if he is a young guy trying to you know be the top guy and you guys need him to look good and he's gonna get the big push you gotta put him in there with guys who know how to make that happen and how to sort of hide the negatives and accentuate the positives. So maybe Arn Anderson or Bobby Eaton or Brad Armstrong, they sort of check the boxes, but God damn, he drops his TV title, which to Arn, he would tell you that was his world title. And he drops it to not the real ultimate warrior, but a cosplay ultimate warrior. Cosplay ultimate warrior. That's a good one. <clears throat> and very, very accurate. 
Look, what, what year was that? When did that happen? 1995. This is before the world changed with the NWO. What, what, what month? Just to help me out here a little June. bit. June. Okay. So I think in June of 95, Ric Flair was booking. Number one, not Eric Bischoff. And I'm not putting this on Rick. Okay. This is, I'm sure Rick didn't want to do it either. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure Arn didn't really didn't want to do it. And I guarantee you, Arn had a conversation or two over a cocktail with Rick about it. And I'm guarantee you, Rick didn't want to do it. But let's let's not try to avoid the you know elephant in the room. That was very much a, a Hulk Hogan influenced decision. And looking back on it now, I understand what Hulk was trying to do. He was trying to recreate some of the success um, that he experienced when he was in WWF. I get it. Uh, his view and his take and his perception on characters and what could work and what couldn't work was highly influenced by the things that had success when he was in WWF previously. I understand that. Um, quite obvious that Renegade was, as you put it, the cosplay ultimate warrior. He was that character that, you know, I, th- I think from Hulk's point of view, hoped that the audience could get behind. The miscalculation there is not different, really, than what we were talking about earlier with the Four Horsemen. You know, you can't recreate something that was no matter how popular it was for how long a period of time or how short a period of time, you can't recreate it with a lesser than character. You can dress it up the same. You can have similar music. You can have a similar finish. You can do all the things that you can do to try to recreate something, you know, lightning in the bottle, but you won't, you won't be able to, it'll always be perceived as less than simply because it's not original. And in Renegade's case, you know, man is no longer with us. So I'm going to be, as elegant as I can be here uh, and respectful as I can be here. But the man didn't have, not that Ultimate Warrior was necessarily a world-class technician either. But I think when you have somebody as young and green and certainly, you know, (laughs) I don't know know how else to say this other than awkward in the ring. And not only that, now he's pretending he's the Ultimate Warrior or trying to recreate that. It just was bad creative choice again not putting it on rick ultimately i should have probably taken more control of that situation i was trying to avoid getting involved in creative at that time i didn't really get involved until 96 but it it was what it was and it was influenced greatly by you know hulk hogan and jimmy hart jimmy hart was a big uh and again not putting it on jimmy jimmy was doing the best he could you know, he was working as hard as he could. He was being as honest as he could uh, under the circumstances. And, and Jimmy was also a big advocate uh, in that regard. So it, it was what it was. And, man, if I was if I was Arner Anderson, I would still resent Eric Bischoff for not being able to stop that train. Yeah, something else, wasn't it, man? It's, it's just, uh, yeah, something else. But thankfully, you guys were looking out for him. And just a month later... He would get to team with his good friend, Ric Flair and a handicap match against Vader where Vader beat them both. Understand that, you know, I mean, <laughs> look, well, I mean, obviously, you know, Ric Flair fans, Arn Anderson fans that were firm 
hardcore Flair Anderson fans because of their legacy and their abilities and their stature within the company will always disagree with that decision. And, and there's no, they may be right. Keep in mind though, from a creative perspective, we're trying to build Vader as a monster. And uh, I'll suggest that, you know, WCW was fairly successful at that. He, he was a monster. He was that guy that was amazingly difficult to beat. He was that top heel, um, or, or top character. So I, I understand how Ric Flair and Iron Anderson and their legion of fans around the world, including you, <laughs> would laugh at that and suggest that it was a horrible idea. But if you're trying to build a monster, again, who better to build that monster with than two guys of the stature of Ric Flair and Iron Anderson? Argue, argue with the formula all you want, but in some respects, it makes sense. Well, up next, we do get a real treat because um, problems are going to ensue. After this match, after Vader beats them both for the first time, really, we see Rick Flair and Arn Anderson have an argument on screen and Rick tries to leave, but Arn pulls him back in the ring by his hair and they argue more and more and believe it or not, we're going to have our very first Rick Flair, Arn Anderson match. And it's going to go down at fall brawl, 1995, obviously a career highlight for both of these guys because of their long friendship. Whose idea is that Rick Flair's idea to finally have this come to a head at fall brawl or is somebody else suggesting, Hey, what if you guys had a match? Well, and I'll go back to the, uh, the handicap match with Vader and Arn and Rick, whose idea do you think that was Rick Flair was booking that. Right. And that was a Rick Flair match. That wasn't a Hulk Hogan influence. That wasn't Eric Bischoff saying, that's what I want to see. There was nobody else telling Rick, you know, at that point, we have to have this match and you're going to do it or you're fired. So, you know, Rick, as much as I love Rick, and I know you do too, and so does everybody else that's probably listening to this podcast. You know, he he was writing back then. He was he was the booker, not Eric Bischoff, not Hulk Hogan. He was the booker. Uh, it certainly was the case here in this match leading up to Fall Brawl. And I will tell you, you know, this morning I got up knowing we were going to talk about this and wanting to refresh my memory as best I could. I went back and looked at this match, and I looked at the setup for it on WCW Saturday Night. And the, the setup for it, I thought, was fantastic. Yeah, it was believable. It wasn't overdone. It 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 felt organic. It, it in terms of a story. And setting up a story. In terms of an act one, I don't think I've seen a better one. Uh, it, it was subtle, but very easy to understand. You know, fans that knew their relationship could immediately relate to what was happening on the screen in front of them when, you know, Arn was basically challenging Rick to be a better version of himself. Not in those words, obviously. Uh, and in Rick taking exception to it and basically challenging Arn, you know, to a match, I thought, I thought the setup for it was fantastic. And the match itself, I went back and looked at it. It's about a 26 minute match. I think I saw it in three different parts. I think it was about 26 minutes, 27 minutes. And to me, it was a classic textbook three act structure in that match. The beginning of the match kind of set the tone you know, they didn't come out there and start tearing each other apart immediately. You saw a little bit of that, that, uh, I don't want to say reluctance, but in a, a, a different kind of uh, beginning of that match because they had such a long relationship and there was no definitive heel or babyface in that role, which was another very unusual aspect of, of this story in the, in the match itself. 
um, you had two guys who everybody knew had been longtime friends, almost brothers, as Bobby Heenan would say in the commentary of that match. And it, it's the, the first, I would say, eight or ten, maybe seven or eight minutes of that match really set the tone. And it, it, and it built into the second act where you finally now see these guys who are in the middle of battle forgetting all about their relationship, forgetting, forget all about this you know, brotherhood or, 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 or family that they were each a part of. Now you see this match really escalate and Rick kind of take control of the match where it looks like Arn's in a lot of trouble. And I think in my version, you know, I kind of look at things in three act structures. I look at everything, whether it's a TV commercial or I read a book or even music sometimes is, is very much in my mind, at least a three act structure. But in this match, very much. So the storytelling and the psychology in this match was just, textbook i encourage people to go to the wwe network and and watch it if you're an aspiring you know performer or you're a seasoned performer go back and look at this match for no other reason than the psychology and the pacing and the timing of it obviously the execution in the ring goes without saying because of the principles involved but by the end of the second act that i see in my mind at least you know when when rick gets the figure four on arn for the first time you know, I mean, it didn't happen. There wasn't a lot of attempts at it. You know, this is really the first time he had it locked in. And you think, oh, my God, this one's going to be over. And it's not. By the third act, you know, you, you see the match come to its conclusion. And I I just loved it. I I really, really liked that match. I didn't like the finish. I, I will admit I, the finish to me kind of killed the match. That didn't kill the match. The match was outstanding. It was a textbook match. But I think... You know, having Pillman involved and, you know, kicking Rick in the back of the head was a, oh, I hate to say this, atypical WCW type finish. It could have been so much better. I mean, in retrospect, I I would have had Arn beat Rick. Why not? Well, you did. Could, Arn pinned Rick here, but uh, it could have been. Yeah, playing. but without without the interference. Yeah, he, yeah. Didn't, he didn't need the schmas. He didn't need Pillman to help beat Rick. He could have beat Rick clean, uh, or a lot cleaner, let's say, and and Rick could have gotten his heat back a week later or two weeks later if he needed it. He didn't have. And by the way, the kick, you know, no disrespect to Brian Pillman, but that kick in the camera shot that 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 supported it, mm, less than stellar. It it just took away to me. It just that, that one moment that and it all as WCW so often did. No matter who was booking, including Rick, these types of finishes took away from what was otherwise, a, in my opinion, a, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was a 10. But because of the finish, it was maybe an 8.5 or a 9. It could have been a 10 without the interference. What we're talking about, of course, is Fall Brawl 95. And Arn has said this is the only time he's ever thrown up before a match. He says it was all because of the nerves and... After he does his pre-match interview, which you can see on the pay-per-view, and you should go watch if you're going to watch one thing from this show. But on his way to the ring, he has to stop and throw up because his stomach's in knots. He says he never really wanted to wrestle Rick because he was his best friend, and fans knew that that was not just a television situation. That was real life, and he didn't think anybody would buy it. But you guys give him plenty of time. They go 22 minutes here, and Meltzer would say most of the underneath wrestlers were sitting together. Of course, faces and heels were kept separate, but everyone's watching this to try and 
put over the importance of the match and the psychology was excellent. And, um, of course we know that it's going to be Arn Anderson's DDT that gets the pin after a little bit of help from a Brian Pillman Enziguri with a cowboy boot, three and a half stars. I'm sure Rick had no problem putting over his friend. We didn't really talk too much about their real life situation, but, uh, they wind up having another match on October, October 2nd, rather. Uh, and this time it's, uh, flair getting the win by DQ. And then the third match it's Arn pinning flair in a steel cage match. So you guys had a little bit of uh, life to this feud. It wasn't just one and done. But the fall brawl match on pay-per-view is probably what most people remember the most, but having Arn Anderson and Ric Flair inside of a steel cage, that's a good nitro main event. Is it not? That's, that's a good, good main event anywhere. Really? It's a pay-per-view main event. It's a nitro main event. It's a main event in WWF at the time. And obviously, you know, worthy in WCW more than worthy in WCW. So yeah, it was a great matchup. And again, you know, for all the reasons that Rick, that uh, Arn Anderson didn't want to do that match. I think the backstory and the fact that fans knew they were friends. I understand why, why from Arn's point of view, he may have felt like they wouldn't buy it. On the other hand, Arn's performance, you know, in the interviews leading up to it, the interview that I referred to on, on WCW Saturday night leading up to it was so freaking believable that, that it, 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 that interview alone made that whole storyline believable. Do you think, um, do you think you could describe or, or talk a little bit about behind the scenes, you know, what these guys relationship was like, Rick and Arn, I, I fair to say traveling partner. Can you elaborate? I mean, it was, uh, look, I didn't travel with them. I didn't hang out with them, you know, after the shows, I didn't socialize with them, you know, away from the office and that type of thing. So I can't talk about, you know their relationship in any kind of detail other than what I saw when I was with him at TVs and certainly in conversations that I had with Rick. Cause I spent a lot of time with Rick, you know, away from television and in, in, in many cases away from the office. So I had a very um, clear picture of how much respect Rick Flair had for Arn Anderson and vice versa. Not as much. I did. I didn't spend nearly as much time with Arn, but it was apparent to everybody that they were, you know, they were, when I say joined at the hip, I mean, they were very, very, very close and everybody knew that. I think their psychology about what worked and what didn't work was very similar, if not probably identical in many respects. Um, they both had a high amount of respect for people that could deliver in the ring as well as on the mic. They, they both valued the very same elements in, in, in performers and in matches and in storylines. Uh, so they were... It's almost one and the same in many respects. And it was obvious that they were very close outside of the ring. Around this time, we see Rick literally start to beg Sting to be his partner against Arn and Brian Pillman. And Sting, of course, refuses several times until finally agreeing to do it. And uh, Rick has a few kids in the ring with him, and Sting agrees to be the partner. And he tells Rick if he betrays him, he'll leave him for dead. And that of course gets us to Halloween Havoc 95 and it's Arn and Pillman on one side, Flair and Sting on the other. And wouldn't you know it, that damn Rick Flair turned his back and the horsemen are back together. Nice little payoff to the Arn Flair feud, is it not? Um you know, I watched that today too, and I you, had a you didn't love it. Look, I had a little bit of a problem with it. You know, it, 
the reason that I loved the the Arn Anderson Ric Flair story, especially the beginning of it, the way it was set up, as as I've discussed here, it was so believable. It just felt it was plausible. It could be true, right? And I understand, you know, Ric Flair, you know, tur- turning on the charm and and bringing his kids into the ring and all, you know, begging Sting to be his partner. I understand it, and creatively, I would have. Had I needed to, I would have signed off on it. But, you know, 20 some odd years later, looking back at it, it's like, oh, I, I just wasn't buying it. You know, and, and eventually aren't turning on, on staying in the three of them, you know, stomping a mud hole in them. The action was great. The action was great. But talking about making a guy look stupid. i mean and you get that all the time you know with characters and it's look it's hard when when you're telling these stories you know we we go in and out of logic and we go in and out of you know the the, this area where we we said well we we have creative license it's storytelling you know this really wouldn't happen in real life but we're telling a story and you know you've got to enhance the story and, and be entertaining you know or we'll you know, we'll do the same thing with logic. If there's something that we don't like, we'll, you know, people will immediately say, whether you're a critic of what's going on, whether you're writing a, you know, an online story or in Reddit or you're writing a, you know, a dirt sheet or whatever, it's very easy to go, yeah, but that's not logical. Well, a lot of what happens inside of a wrestling ring or, or within a story isn't necessarily logical. We've talked about this before. Um, but the other challenge that we often have, I often had, um, is when you put a piece of talent into a story and say, yeah, but that's going to make me look stupid. Well, yes and no. <laughs> it, it depends on how you handle it. It depends on how the story really is told, you know? And I think in retrospect, even though Sting said to Rick, yeah, but if you, you, you turn your back on me, I'll, you know, I'm going to leave you for dead. Okay. That kind of works, but I think acknowledging that struggle and hearing from Sting, again, if I could go back and rewrite this story, you know, if we would have heard from Sting in a little bit more detail than just that one threat, if you turn your back on me, I'll leave you for dead. Okay, that gets your attention as a viewer. It covers Sting a little bit because it now as a viewer, you recognize that he doesn't necessarily really trust Rick. But I think that component of the story had it been built upon a little more, had we seen a little more struggle, you know, with Sting prior to the match being made in official, uh, whether or not he should really allow himself to be put in a position where he's in there with Ric Flair, you know, and, and, and Arn Anderson at the same time, I think, I think that we could have done a better job. And I think it would have been possible to tell that story so that the finish of that match would have been more palatable for someone like me in retrospect. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't take the time to tell it. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that has evolved, you know, in modern day wrestling is there's an attempt at least to spend more time, um, dealing with some of the narrative that goes into these stories. And I think going forward into the future, you know, here's an example, silly one, you know, very basic, but Superman was Superman, but he had his own kryptonite. There was a one thing that could there was that one thing that could that could make Superman lose all of his power. 
And I think sometimes when you've got characters like Sting was, you know, he was a super baby face, you know, huge crowd following everybody. He was over, but it would have been interesting. I think or more interesting to see that one struggle that he would have been going through. What's the one thing that, that would make him vulnerable and in a believable way so that when he was in that position, he didn't look stupid. And, and he kind of did here. Because that that issue was never properly dealt with from a storytelling point of view. It was never properly managed uh, or, or focused upon. So, anyway, we, there's uh, my philosophy. There's my philosophy 101. <laughs> we eventually see uh, Muto, the former Muta, and Sting defeat Arn and Rick in November of '95, and not terribly long after that, or around the same time, we see Chris Benoit join the already formed. Arn, Pillman, and Flair. How does uh how does Benoit get the vote of confidence to join the group here? He had a very brief stint in WCW back in like ninety two or ninety three, but now he's a part of a, a pretty prominent a pretty prominent group here on television. He had a lot of support from both Arn and Rick, from what I recall. Rick in particular, because I talked to Rick more about it than Arn. But you know, there that, that's an example of pretty pretty good casting. You know, you, you look, go back and look at Paul Roma, put, you, you look at Chris Benoit from that period of time, you put them side by side. Um, Chris Benoit, if I was a casting director and I was casting the movie called The Four Horsemen, uh, Chris Benoit, because of his reputation, because of the way he carried himself, because of the way he could deliver in the ring, he had that same kind of hard edge. When I say traditional, or, or simple, basic. I don't mean that as a pejorative in any way. I mean that as a compliment. That style of wrestling that both Arn and Rick, probably more Arn than Rick even, represented was just made Chris Benoit a perfect you know, cast member for that movie. I guess we should mention that uh, around this era, we start to see Brian Pillman become more and more of his loose cannon persona. What did, uh, did you ever have a conversation with Arn? about this angle you guys did with Brian Pillman. What did he think of this? Oh, I don't, you know, I don't recall talking to Arn about it. I, I very well may have, but it, you know, not the type of conversation it would stick out of my mind. 20 some odd years later. I, I don't know what Arn thought of it. Really. I, I wouldn't want to try to put words in his mouth or get inside his head. The February 12th, 1996 nitro is something that I'm going to recommend. If you're a big Arn Anderson fan, you go watch. Because unbelievably, Arn Anderson pins Hulk Hogan on Nitro. And there'd be lots of criticism, I'm sure, in the dirt sheets and lots of speculation that perhaps Hulk Hogan was doing this to sort of quieten the wolves who maybe weren't happy with the way the booking had been done. Uh, What do you remember about, and, and whether that's fair or not, I feel like whenever Hulk Hogan was receiving a lot of criticism, whether it's in the dirt sheets or in the locker room or whatever, it seems like he goes out to prove a point that, Hey, I'm not what you think I am. And he puts over a guy like Billy Kidman or a guy like Arn Anderson, who's not normally, you know, slotted to be beating Hulk Hogan. What do you remember about the decision to have Arn pin Hulk on TV here in February of 96? I don't, let's take those two, you know, Billy Kidman and Arn Anderson is since you brought Kidman into this discussion, I, I was probably more responsible for Hulk doing a job for Billy Kidman than anybody was. Um, 
I, I want at that in what what were we night two we were probably in two thousand at that time. Yeah, I believe when Hulk Hogan did the job for Billy Kidman, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, look, we were trying to reshuffle the deck. We were re- trying to bring some people up from underneath. I had a lot of respect for Billy Kidman as a talent and and, and as a performer and as a professional. He was he was a solid guy. Um, and I remember going to Hulk and talking to him about that and convincing him that it was the right thing to do. He didn't want to do it. I can tell you that. He looked at me like I had three eyes when I sat down with him until we got into it. And I explained why. And then he did it. You know, and it's not like he was, you know, happy to do it. He wasn't like super excited about it, but he understood the reasoning and was willing to do it as a professional. That that's one that I did have involvement in. Now, as far as uh, putting over Arn, I wasn't as directly involved in those discussions, um, even though it was 96. Um, likely that was Rick and Arn, and not Arn, but Rick and Hulk. And I'm sure I did get involved in that. I can't tell you why Hulk agreed to do it. I can't get inside of Hulk's head and tell you not whether or not he was reading a dirt sheet and decided it was a good idea to put over Arn Anderson. That's a conversation we'd have to have with Hulk, uh, if he even remembers it, to be frank. But I think it was a good decision. And I, I think Hulk often does and did especially get a lot of criticism for not being willing to put guys over and being very selective about when and where and who he did it with. I don't know that you can blame him for that. He had to protect his character. It would have been one of the reasons why, honestly, Hulk didn't really have any interest in coming to WCW unless Ric Flair was in WCW and Ric Flair was booking is because he knew Ric Flair understood that. You know, you had to protect that Hulk Hogan character. As big as Hulk Hogan's character was in 96 when he had the match with Arn, he was still, as a character goes, he was still uh, easy to damage. It was easy to hurt that character. And he, Hulk wanted to be sure that he wasn't put into situations where people took advantage of the equity in the Hulk Hogan brand to try to get over lesser talents just so they could say they beat Hulk Hogan. Because that was a prevailing philosophy, you know, in many respects. Um, but again, I can't, I can't tell you what was in Hulk's head and whether he did it because he read something in a dirt sheet that made him feel like he had to do it. That's a, that's a conversation we'd have to have with Hulk. Let's talk about something going on behind the scenes because after, you know, he gets a couple of wins here, even the following week against Hulk, he gets a win, but this time by DQ. But he finds himself rarely in singles and mostly in tag matches. And, uh, after seeing his chiropractor and consulting some quote unquote medical experts, the damage was found to be much more severe and surgery is deemed to be the only option for him to keep his left arm functioning at all. So he has this surgery done in Atlanta in late 96. It's going to result in a uh, left posterior laminectomy of the third, fourth, and fifth cervical bones and fusion of the seventh cervical and first thoracic bones. Um, that's successful in repairing most of the damage. And there does, uh, remain some muscle weakness. There's going to be a loss of fine motor control and a loss of muscle mass in the left arm. And he's going to be in the hospital for several weeks during this time. And he gets a lot of credit. And his recovery to his wife and physical therapist, because he, uh, I mean, this is, this is a big situation and he's going to be readmitted in March of 97 
with symptoms akin to cardiac arrest, pulmonary failure, but he's released soon thereafter, but he's got some medical stuff going on here to say the least. And it all sort of comes to a head for him the day before Halloween havoc 96, when he goes to a gold's gym, picks up a couple of 30 pound dumbbells and they just fall out of his hand and hit the floor. And he tries to pick up the weight and his thumb and first two fingers are just unusable from locking his car door and walking into the gym, a chip moved into a nerve canal and just shuts down use of the left hand, but he manages to make it through the match the next day. Lex Luger beats him with the torture rack in 12 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, Meltzer gave it two and three quarter stars and Anderson does a stretcher job here. Um, and after the match, you know, it's announced that he's been taken to the hospital and that flair and Jarrett went with him and, uh, Orange trying to lace up his boots at a Disney taping in early 97. And he says that you noticed his hand and you ask him what's going on. And when he said, it's been that way for a few months, you told him to take his boots off and go get it checked out. And, uh, he gets that MRI done and they tell him that the vertebrae five, six, seven, and T one, all the nerve canals are totally blocked. So in April of 97, he goes in to fuse five, six, and seven into his neck. And it's so bad that he's now got full blown paralysis in his left hand. And essentially that's it for his in-ring wrestling career. But he says the pain at this point was so bad that he would have rather just died because it's the worst he'd ever felt. And the second day after the surgery, none of the pain meds are working and he he's ready to get his affairs in order because he just cannot live like this anymore. Do you remember seeing him at Disney and noticing his hand and, and really pushing him to go do something about this? Yeah, I do. That, that moment is pretty clear to me and, Part of the reason for it is my father, uh, when, when he was born, he was born prematurely. He was born in 1930, and when he was born, he only weighed three and a half pounds. So you can only imagine it's a miracle that he lived, period. And he was born on a farm where they had to incubate him in a dresser drawer with a light bulb. Um, but because he was born so prematurely, there was a, his spine never fully developed. And by the time my father was in his mid-20s, the cerebral fluid in his brain over time had throughout his, you know, from the time he was born till he's in his early twenties had built up in this hole that was in his spine as a result of never forming properly. And that cerebral fluid was putting pressure on the on the nerves in the spinal column. And he went in to have surgery and I was just a little kid at the time, but he went in to have surgery. And when he came out of that surgery, his right hand, the, the nerves in his right hand had been damaged to the extent that he was permanently paralyzed in his right hand and, and about 60% paralyzed in his left hand. Um, so, and then as I got older and obviously as an adult and as my father got older, that the, the atrophy and just the shape and the way that my father's hands would kind of curl up, you know, I, it's hard to describe, but um, it was very familiar to me. And when I looked at Arn and I noticed his hand, it reminded me very much of my dad. 
and having a little bit of not a, certainly not a, a doctor, and I don't know what any of the progno- or diagnosis was that you talked about earlier. The um, the situation that that Arn had medically, I don't know what any of that means, but I do know that you know when I saw Arn's hand, it looked just like my dad's right. or very close to it, and I re- I knew then or I suspected, I should say, I suspected that there was a possibility of nerve damage, which is why I wanted him to go get checked out because it was more serious than probably Arn even knew or certainly than I knew. I wasn't aware of, you know, what happened to Gold's Jam. I wasn't aware of the pain that he was in. You know, that was not something that Arn shared with me. And keep in mind, you know, a lot of performers, a lot of talent at that time didn't necessarily want to let the world know that they had an injury. It wasn't that they were forced to work hurt, but because of the nature of the business, um, there was always a thought in the back of talent's mind, I believe. Um, I'm sure everybody was different, but for the most part, I think it's safe to say that a lot of talent worked hurt because they were afraid if they didn't, they wouldn't have a job. They didn't want to lose their position. And I think that was probably, to a degree, the case with Arn. Even though Arn was on a guaranteed contract, he didn't know that there was no way I was going to let him fall and, and end up without work. He didn't know that I would make him an agent. He didn't know He didn't know me. Um, so to protect himself and his family, he, he probably did keep a lot of those injuries, to a degree, to himself or to people who were very close to him. But when I saw the hand, and, I, I, and it, because it reminded me so much of what my dad looked like when I was growing up, that, yeah, I did you know, pretty much force him to, to get out of the ring and, and go get checked out. He wasn't, was, I don't think he was happy about it. I think he was, I guess, I don't want to say scared. He should have been scared for, for, for no other reason than he had a serious issue. Um, he was probably concerned to a degree what that was going to mean to his career. So it wasn't like he thanked me for making him take off his boots and go get checked out, you know, and get an MRI because I think in Arn's mind, perhaps, Again, I'm not saying that this was the case, and I certainly wasn't inside of his head. But I can certainly understand why, from our, from Arn's perspective, in that moment in time, he thought, holy shit, how am I going to feed my family? I, I would have, if I would have been in his shoes, not knowing the guy he was talking to. And, you know, I, I certainly would have. Well, he still, even after all these surgeries, he still thinks he's got to find a way to wrestle again. And... Uh, about a month after the surgery, he's back in the gym. And I think everybody remembers his famous speech on August 25th, 1997. And we're going to get there, uh, just right before that, either the day before or a couple of days before he's at the gym and a guy comes up to him, slaps him on the back just to say, hi, he's holding a glass of water and he instantly loses the glass of water. A jolt of pain goes through his back and arm and body. And he knows right then he's done. And I think Arn has said that he showed up to TV that day and told you what had happened and that he needed to retire and that you were gracious enough to grant him as much TV time as he needed. And that none of it was scripted. And that was all just shooting from the hip. What do you remember about that famous speech on nitro? I, you know, I just remember how powerful it was. And that was the thing about Arn. You didn't need to script it. I didn't need, I wasn't worried at all about what he was going to say. He was an absolute professional. It wasn't like he was going to go out there and drop a pipe bomb on the audience. He didn't have a, didn't have a, a, a grudge. He was, you know, I was afraid he was going to grind out, you know, on live TV. Um, I also didn't want to influence what he felt he needed to say. He earned that opportunity. 
He, he had my respect. He earned that opportunity. And I didn't want to take one syllable of what he had to say away from him for any reason. Um, and again, I trusted him. I wasn't worried about any adverse impact. I wanted it to be what Arn felt he needed to say. And I knew that from an audience perspective, they not only would believe it, but they would feel compassion for Arn. Talk to me a little bit about when you find out, do you remember this being a sort of day of decision? He tells you, Hey man, I can't do it. You know, I was trying to work on a comeback and work out, but this hand just ain't going to get it. I'd like to say goodbye tonight. And you granted him the time. Is it that easy? Uh, I'd be lying if I said, I remembered when, if, if it happened the day before or two days before day of, I, 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 I don't remember. Honestly, I remember having the conversation, but I don't remember the time, you know, the time frame necessarily. So he goes out, cuts one heck of a promo, and we're going to play it at the end of, uh, our show today, because we think it's, uh, one of the most powerful things that happened in wrestling in 1997. And Aaron has even said that it was the most real thing he's ever done in front of a camera. And he said, if he would have seen Rick's face during it, he's not sure he would have, would have even been able to get through it. And, um, you can see Rick in the background, his bottom lip is quivering and he's clearly emotional and. Flair would say years later that Sting is watching on a monitor in the back and he's upset because he's been with these guys for a long time too. What's the, what's the tone and tenor? What's the feeling in the mood backstage as Arn is pouring his heart out here? I think it's exactly as, you know, you described it, you know, you described Sting's perspective. I think everybody, because look, I don't think there was anybody who didn't absolutely respect Arn Anderson. There may have been people that didn't like him, but there was no one that didn't have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And again, at that time, you know, here you got a guy and Aaron Anderson who had spent, you know, the majority of his adult life, um, in the ring. It was his life. It was the way he fed his family. It was, it was his identity, you know? And I think that happens with a lot of talent, you know, that, that have been around for a long time. And, you know, your character in the ring sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, you know, carries over into your personal life and you become associated so strongly with that character that it's hard to ever get away from it. It's not like being an actor where you're a certain type of character for a period of two months or six months while you're on a movie set or on a television series where you're a character on TV, but everybody knows you're a different person in real life. For whatever reason, the, the line between reality and, 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 and fiction, um, is blurry when it comes to sports entertainment, professional wrestling people off your fan base often forgets that they're not one in the same. And I think in Arn's case, because the guy that you saw on the street looked exactly like the guy that you saw in the ring, uh, people even more so identified with him. And I think Arn identified with that character in the ring because it was so much about who he was. You know, if you talk to Arn Anderson outside of television and Arn Anderson inside of a, in a promo in a ring, there's not a lot of difference between those, that guy, you know, the, the, the character is turned up a couple notches, you know, in the ring, but the person and the character are very closely aligned. And I think what happens with guys like Arn and to a degree, Ric Flair, you see the same thing with Rick, you know, that identity 
that they've lived with for so long and has fed their family as a character is really becomes a part of who they are as a person. And when you're faced with having to walk away from that, it's, it's a mind fuck. It really, really is. And I understand that. And I think that's what Arn was going through. And I think talent, the performers, the people backstage that were watching that, you combine their understanding of that along with the fact that they had so much respect for them. It was a very powerful moment. And I don't want to say sad, probably not the right word, but it's the closest thing I can think of right now. Uh, it had a profound impact on people. Of course, we know that uh, Kurt is going to accept Arn's spot and uh, the stage is set. He is now the enforcer of the four horsemen. And we know that's not going to last very long. About three weeks later, they're going to turn and, uh, we'll get there. But first we should talk about what happens the following week. And you know, this is coming. It's the parody of Arn Anderson's retirement speech done by Kevin Nash. And, uh, we'll play that clip as well. But the point is it's not very complimentary. And, uh, maybe not very polite. It's supposed to be funny. Clearly it, 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 it was because Wade Keller would report the spoofing of Arn Anderson's memorable retirement speech from the August 25th nitro by Kevin Nash, six Marcus Bagwell and Conan on the September 1st nitro stole the show, but it didn't amuse the targets of the satire and thus led to a blow up backstage. Anderson and flair were livid with some of the areas the satire ventured. In Anderson's case, he said afterwards that his wife and 12-year-old son were upset by the skit. He said his son was crying as a result, and his wife was upset that his drinking was now an issue on television. And Flair is upset that Six was mocking his dancing in the line. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, and I don't know why. Um, some of this, of course, is just funny ha-ha, but I think the idea that they're mocking what was a very real-life sentimental situation is what maybe has struck a nerve and the idea that maybe Arn had at different times had challenges with alcohol and Kevin Nash was making fun of it maybe struck a nerve at home and people are upset and supposedly some tough words are exchanged and depending on who you believe a lot of the blame has fallen on Terry Taylor for this what do you remember about this uh Obviously, I remember that it happened. I remember the fallout from it. Um, I remember having to, I felt pretty bad about it, obviously. And as time has gone on, I feel even worse about it now than I did then. Because uh, I think I just have a better understanding of people and I'm probably more mature now than I was back then. You know, when I when you're caught up in television and constantly trying to outdo yourself and push the envelope and break the barriers and all the other things that think out of the box, you know, however you want to say it, you know, you, you sometimes become desensitized to how certain things can make people feel. And in retrospect, probably one of the things I regret most in terms of allowing it to happen, you know, it's, I get it. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I, I remember, yeah, it was, it was fucking horrible. Uh, I believe Terry Taylor was probably the agent and I guess is why he, he would have been 
the target. Uh, but it's not really Terry's fault either. You know, you'll you'll not hear me spend a lot of time on this podcast defending Terry Taylor. I like Terry, um, but he did a lot of stupid shit uh, when he worked for WCW that that caused issues. But in this case, I don't think Terry was necessarily to blame either because the talent you know involved they they were you know they were walking pipe bombs, literally and. The process, you know, the, the good news is, and one of the reasons that Nitro was as spectacular of a television show as it was for a period of time, was because we didn't necessarily stick to word-for-word scripts. And we had a lot of talent who were capable, like we talked about with Arn and Ric Flair and, you know, Roddy Piper and many Randy Savage. There's a lot of guys that had that ability to go out and tell a story, and you knew that story was going to get told and it was going to be powerful. They were going to tell that story within their character's kind of point of view, and it was going to be effective. And you didn't have to script them word-for-word. Had there been that scripting process involved, and had we had a chance to, you know, make sure everybody laid eyes on that script who were involved in it and or on the receiving end of it, uh, it might not have happened, but we might not have ever got a show done either at that point um, because we weren't set up that way. Things are different now. Things are different in 2019 than they were in 1996. But it was what it was, and it happened, and you can't put the bullet back in the gun, so to speak. So, you know, it's, it's, it was unfortunate. But I do remember there was a ton of fallout. Was it great TV? Absolutely. It was great television. Great television. But I can certainly understand how that great television had, you know, especially when it affects your wife and your kids. You know, when you get that personal and you start weaving in, you know, personal issues like drinking and things like that, uh, that have really no place in a promo. You know, unless everybody's cool with it, and that's something that should have been discussed beforehand. Um, I can certainly see how that would have a, a really horrible impact on on somebody's family, and therefore the talent. Let's go down the rabbit hole a little bit there, because. Uh, but before we do, I do want to mention that this skit, just to give you sort of a, a frame of reference, this happens in the middle of what is essentially a tribute show to Arn, because there's lots of sound bites and quotes and interviews and highlights of his career. But the other wrestlers are paying tribute to him as we go sort of in and out of the breaks and we're seeing clips of his career. So it is very much a celebratory episode for Arn Anderson. And then of course, in typical heel fashion, the NWO here is here to mock it. And Arn's been on record as saying he didn't like it. And he had to find out if it was a personal attack because it did, in his opinion, cross the line. And he wanted to have a conversation with Kevin Nash about it because he felt like it was in poor taste. But Arn has said that one of his faults in the business is not knowing when he could say no and when he should say no, but most importantly, the could part, there may have been lots of things he didn't want to do, but he wasn't ever sure if, if, if he said, no, does that mean now I could jeopardize my job? And you have to appreciate from Arn's perspective, he's only ever been employed by WCW as a wrestler. Now he can no longer wrestle. If he causes a big stink here or says no to something, or it's difficult to do business with knowing that Nash has certainly got more political stroke at this point. Could that affect his ability to earn an income? That's obviously the concern. Um, Kevin Nash would say, I thought I was okay to do this because the cooler I used that night was actually in real life. Arn Anderson's cooler. So in Kevin Nash's point of view, I did what I thought was okay. You know, it was, uh, Brought to me by Terry Taylor. We went through it. We worked it out. They, we spent a lot of time on the makeup and 
sort of to get it over. I got a cooler from Arn Anderson's Arn's actual cooler. And it took him about an hour and a half to get dressed up. And he's taking credit for the idea, but a lot of the verbiage and a lot of the, you know, agenting of it was all on Terry Taylor and Arn's wife. When she makes the call says Kevin Nash made you like a stupid fucking drunk. And, 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 and Ric Flair's wife is chiming in saying you guys look like a bunch of boobs. There's a lot of heat here. And Kevin says that it's no big deal, uh, to him. He felt like after they had the conversation, it was put to bed and Arn walks over to him and has a beer with him that night at the hotel bar. And I don't know how much of that is real and how much of that is not, but clearly maybe when uh, the wives get involved, people feel like they need to take a different stance. I'm sure we'll hear from Arn on this in the future. Uh, I guess we haven't mentioned yet, but we do have a new podcast starting with Arn. You can follow it on social media at the Arn show. Uh, but he's off TV until September 12th when Ric Flair comes back and they reform the horseman. Um, when I'm saying back, I mean, after his big feud with you, uh, and then he, he finally returns and it's a special night in Greenville, another big moment. It feels like whenever you need one of these big sort of real emotional moments, if you put the microphone in Arn Anderson's hand, you're going to check all the boxes. Fair to say. Uh, understated. Yeah. More than fair to say. He's going to be, uh, behind the scenes with WCW. What, how would you classify or categorize his employment or what his position was or what his role or duties or job description were once his in ring work is done and it's not needed for these big, you know, momentous occasions where we're going to put the horseman back together because flares back or whatever. He was an agent and he was one of the best ones we've ever had. You know, it's always tough for a guy like Arne Anderson, who for so long was, if not at the top, damn close to it in terms of the you know talent food chain, he was always a, a primary character and, and driver uh, over the course of his career. It didn't mean every once in a while he didn't do a dip when he dropped the belt to the renegade. But for the most part, politically and in terms of stature and respect, Arn was always one of those guys. And certainly as a result of his proximity to Ric Flair. <clears throat> but once much like we were talking about a few minutes ago, when you're you're so closely related to your character, and you, that character becomes such a big part of your real identity, and you have to you wake up one morning and realize that you're no longer going to be able to 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 perform in the ring and to and to have that part of your life, which has been such an important part of your life. That's a very uh, defining moment. But nonetheless, he was still Arn Anderson. He had to step out of the ring, and now he has to become management. You go from being talent to management, you or as they say in in the locker room, you go from being talent to to office, and that's a tough transition, a really tough transition. And I think Arn handled it extremely well. Um, he he was a great agent and just, you know, a walking, talking textbook when it came to psychology and how to get, whether it was in the ring through the physical narrative or whether it was on a microphone, uh, there's nobody better as an agent, in my opinion, uh, at that time than Arn Anderson. During his career, he held the TV title four times, the world tag team championships five times. Of course, he went to the hall of fame with the four horsemen, Eric, let's wrap things up. What do you think Arn's legacy will be in professional wrestling? I think as time goes on, 
in many respects, thanks to the WWE network, because that's where the bulk of arms work in the ring can be seen by, you know, millions of people around the world. I think over time, uh, Arn Anderson's will probably, his name will probably be more 10 years from now than it does today, because there are very few people that could put on a masterclass either in the ring or on the microphone. There was nobody else that I can think of, uh, that could make you believe more than Arn Anderson. And I even, I'll even throw Ric Flair in that. You know, I think if you put those two together while Ric Flair, if I had to compare them, no doubt Ric Flair could be much more entertaining. He had a, a, a broader range, if you will. He could give you that very believable, emotional performance that could suck you into a story in an angle in all the right ways and could put on a hell of a performance in that respect. But Rick could also be that crazy son of a bitch that had pulled, taken off his pants and handcuffing himself to the ring and cutting this, you know, mad scientist kind of promo that was entertaining as hell. But Arn didn't have that range. But when it came to telling a believable story, a compelling story, and it allowed you to forget that what you were watching was scripted entertainment, nobody better than Arn Anderson. And he could deliver in the ring as well. So I think people will respect Arn more 10 years from now than they do today, to be honest with you. Well, we hope that you're still talking about what we're doing the next four weeks, 10 years from now. Next week, we've got Bischoff Goes Home, the 20-year anniversary of Eric leaving WCW in 1999. The following week, Fall Brawl 1996, the NWO versus Flair, Arn Luger, and Sting, just a few days after Sting turned his back on Lex Luger, or quote-unquote Sting. Then a watch-along on September 23rd from the Madison Square Garden Raw on September 22nd. Of course, that's famously where Stone Cold stunned Vince McMahon and Cactus Jack returned. But then something we've been asked about since day one, September 30th, set your calendars, boys and girls, total nonstop Bischoff will cover when Eric joined TNA. If you've got questions about that show or any of these shows, be sure to follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks. He is at a Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. I'm not ready to give you that answer tonight. This is unbelievable. Kurt, you're a special kind of athlete, a special kind of man, and that gets special consideration. So anticipating your answer, I invited someone down here tonight that wants to have a word with you. My best friend, the enforcers in town. Oh boy. Oh yeah. He's back. Oh man. You want to talk about a man who is a household word here in Columbia, South Carolina. It has got to be the man who has come to the ring right now. One of the all-time legends of this great sport, the enforcer, Arn Anderson. It's a pleasure to hold the microphone, Mr. Anderson, up for you on this occasion. Well, Gene, all I can tell you, to get a response like this means what I got to say tonight mean that much more. You see, I'm a realist, and everybody knows I've got average size and speed and average ability, but I've parlayed that into what I would call a very successful career. And I did that on sheer will alone. 
But another reality is, four months ago, they took four vertebrae out of my neck. Consequently, I'm left with a hand, my left hand, too weak to hold a glass, too weak to button a button. But I thought in my mind, I knew in my mind I could overcome that too, through sheer will. And I was doing just like that. I think I've come back a long way. But the other day I had something happen in the gym that was like a cold slap in the face of reality. A guy about your size, Gene, came up and he slapped me on the back and he said, Double A, where you been? We hadn't seen you on TV. And just that slap sent a jolt through me. And I dropped the water I was drinking. And just for a second, my system shut down and it became crystal clear as I watched the few little drops of water draining out of that bottle, the symbolism that was involved. It was like someone had turned an hourglass over and the sand was running out on the career of Arn Anderson. Now the fact of the matter is, not only do I put myself in a suicide situation by trying to wrestle again, I endanger these two men's careers, and I respect them too much for that. And other than be anything than the enforcer in my best friend's eyes, I'd rather walk away. And for all you people out there that have ever bought a ticket to see Arn Anderson wrestle, whether you love me or you hated me, you knew and when that bell rang, you got all I had that night. Whether I won, whether I lost, I gave you everything I had. And you knew that. And when you did this to me, that was your acknowledgement. Well, the fact is, I got nothing left to give. And I want you to remember me as I was, not as I am. But being the man that I am, my last act... Formerly as a horseman, I got one last challenge, and that's to you, Kurt Henning. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not for a fight. You got something special. I've seen you in this ring. Your skills, your maturity, your commitment to excellence makes you something special. And what my challenge is to you, Kurt, is stand beside my best friend. Ric Flair, and lead these two men back to the glory and the prominence that the four horsemen once had. And I'm going to tell you what your prize is. It's not a spot with the horsemen, because this is worth a lot more than that to me. I'm going to give you the only thing I got left. Not a spot, not a spot. I'll give you my spot. Wow, Kurt Hennig. You know, I know every wrestler that's ever been around or involved in this business we call wrestling who would pass up the honor to not only be a horseman, but to come out and take Arn Anderson's spot as the enforcer of the four horsemen. I have only one thing to say. It would be a privilege. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, brother. Woo! 
But, do we have to listen? But everybody's dying to know. It's been two months, and we got to know. Are you in? Are you out? Woo! They're making a whole mockery. Well, I tell you, Rick, you have put me on the spot here. Woo! You know I got a dog named Spot. Woo! Just to sum it up, you put me on the spot. Woo! But as bad as I hate to say it, people an answer tonight. Woo! You know, last week was was one of the greatest moments. You know something? Turn that egg. <laughs> and this has gone right. I knew that you were going to give us that answer, so I took it upon myself oh. to give all these people a big surprise. Right now, what I'd like to introduce to you my best friend, the enforcer of the Four Horsemen, Arn Anderson. Woo! You know, and I, and I can think of all the low D, the, the things that this group has done. Guys, this is the lowest form yet. Double A, Daddy. You're looking great. I know you were taking care of more important business for, for a second. I'll take care of horseman business. Before I go any further, let me let all the horsemen out here know one thing. Guys, the beer's on ice. All right, Daddy. Woo! Gong them. You know something that's pretty ironic? That on Labor Day, WCW would decide to honor me because anybody that's followed my career knows one thing. Y'all was wondering when I was going to go into labor. You know, I sat back there today and I watched that highlight tape of my career. And I said to myself, you know, I'm a guy of average size, average speed, average quickness, average looks, average intelligence, average carpentry skills. But you know what? I parlayed that into a wrestling career that, if I may say so myself, was quite excellent. Yeah. But you know something? This is not right. Four months ago, I had a neck injury. Subsequently, I lost the feeling in my hand my left hand the significance of that that's a hand i open beer with but you know something 
I willed myself back from that injury. I got in the gym. I didn't do anything. I walked around, but I got to the gym. And you know what? I started to come back. But about a week ago, I went to the neighborhood bar. I bellied up against the bar like only I can. And a fat broad, that's right, a fat broad, came up and smacked me in the back and sent a chill down me. Same fat broads have been following the horsemen for 20 years. But as I looked at that long neck laying on that cheap industrial grade carpentry, I said to myself, how ironic. Now, it wasn't so much the fact that I was out $3.75. What it was to me was sand ticking down through the hourglass, and everybody knows, so are the days of our lives. You know, one thing you could say when Arn Anderson was coming to town, besides the fact that I left a lot of unpaid bar tabs, was Art Anderson was coming to town. And you knew if I was on the card, I was going to give you 100%. No matter how drunk, how hungover I was, I was going to give you all I had. And back in those days before the NWO, you eight people that bought those tickets got one heck of a show. But you know what? As I come out here tonight, I ask you people, don't remember how I used to be. Remember me how I look right now. We've reached the lowest point Good ever Mongo. On, this, on this program. We have. So, Kurt, that puts me and you and I got a challenge for you. Wait a second. I don't want to fight you because I ain't won one in 20 years. What I got for you is a challenge. Because as much as I want to be a horseman, I know if I come out here right now, I not only put him in danger, but I put my best friend in danger, and I can't do that. So what I'm doing tonight is I got a challenge to you. And I ain't got much to offer you because the beer's spoken for. But what I do got is I got a spot. A spot with the four horsemen. Not just a spot, not a liver spot, not a spot like your dog spot. No, not just any spot, but my spot. So I need to know right now, do you accept it? My spot, not their spot, liver spot, dog spot, anybody's spot, my spot, to become a four horseman. Not my spot, anybody's spot, dog spot, liver spot, my spot. As much as I want to say, I'm a double-A fan, 
As much as I want to say, I like to be a four horseman. It's hard to say because I don't like you and I don't like the four horsemen. But I tell you what, it would be an honor. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.